Welcome to Roleplaying History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 76, Dark Sun. Over its long history, Dungeons & Dragons has produced a number of varied settings. Some of them, like the Forgotten Realms, have been the cornerstone of the game from edition to edition. Some, like Spelljammer, have seen great success only to lapse until the next generation of gamer discovers them and insists on having them adapted to the current version of the game. Then there are the settings that had what I call their burn bright moment, only to fade and for most gamers, other than the hardcore fans, disappear from the D&D world almost completely. Today's subject is one of those settings. But in my experience, Dark Sun is a setting that should not only still be played, but also should be supported with regular releases from Wizards of the Coast. It's a post-apocalyptic desert world with a very interesting backstory that also puts limits on magic, weapons, and armor, which means, for those of you who are curious, Dark Sun puts a premium on roleplay and strategy over brute force and charging headlong into battle. And as you'll see as we go along, those aren't the only reasons why I love to run it, and groups of mine going back 25 years tend to hate it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's crank up the tour bus and start with the history of Dark Sun. Dark Sun was designed by Timothy B. Brown and Troy Denning and was initially released by TSR in October of 1991. AD&D 2nd Edition was the version of D&D being played at that time, so those were the rules Dark Sun used. At least, that's mostly the rules Dark Sun used. See, the history of the creation of Dark Sun goes back a couple of years to 1989 and TSR's release of the second edition of Battle System. Battle System was created as a mass combat rule set, which, as you might guess, covers battles with large numbers of combatants. By 1990, the TSR team was working on creating a campaign setting that could use the system as written. The initial name for this setting was War World, and it was envisioned as a post-apocalyptic world, chock full of new and exciting monsters, and absolutely no recognizable fantasy creatures or characters. Needless to say, TSR got a bit nervous about this, worried that the majority of TSR product consumers wouldn't want to buy a new setting that didn't have anything in it they recognized. So, the team was challenged to figure out how to make some of the elements of a classic fantasy role-playing game fit into the new concept. The team responded by adding elves, dwarves, and dragons, but the team put their own twist on them, altering them from their classic and traditional versions. In multiple interviews with the various members of the creative team over the years, this alteration has been given credit as being the focal point of change that pushed the project forward to its ultimate completion and release. By the way, I know I've said team multiple times in the past few minutes, but I only named two designers for the project. The truth is that both answers are correct. Brown and Denning essentially oversaw a team of designers, including Rich Baker, Gerald Brom, Mary Kirchhoff, James Lauder, and Steve Winter during various periods of time during the creation process. It should also be noted that the majority of the creative team were new to TSR, though most weren't new to the industry as a whole, as they'd either worked for other companies, like Steve Winter did with GDW, or had done freelance work over the years. One of Steve Winter's contribution to the setting made all the difference in the world. He suggested that whatever the new setting would be called, it needed to be set in a desert. Over the years, he's acknowledged Richard Corbin's Den and the works of Clark Ashton Smith as his inspirations. 
Gerald Brahms' artistic touches also lent themselves to the feel of this setting. In the book 30 Years of Adventure, a celebration of Dungeons and Dragons, Brahms discussed his contributions. Quote, I pretty much designed the look and feel of the Dark Sun campaign. I was doing paintings before they were even writing about the setting. I do a painting or a sketch, and the designers wrote those characters and ideas into the story. I was very involved in the development process. In a 1992 piece in Dragon Magazine, Rick Swan described the setting, quote, Using the desert as a metaphor for struggle and despair, this presents a truly alien setting, bizarre even by AD&D game standards. From dragons to spellcasting, from character classes to gold pieces, this ties familiar AD&D conventions into knots, end quote. He expanded, noting that the setting world of Athos, quote, shares the post-apocalyptic desolation of FGU's Aftermath game, GDW's Twilight 2000 game, and other after-the-Holocaust RPGs, end quote. With all of the components finally worked out, the original Dark Sun box set was released. As we've noted in previous D&D episodes, boxed sets were all the rage at the time, so anytime a new setting would be released, gamers would get a box chock full of goodies for the new game. However, I'm not going to get into all of the goodies this time like I normally would. I just mentioned it for historical accuracy. I will note, however, that the reason Timothy B. Brown and Troy Denning are most often listed as sole designers is because it's their names on the rulebook included in the box. The underlying details about the setting at launch was the brewing revolution in the Tyr region against the Sorcerer Kings. Troy Denning wrote a five-novel series that dropped between October of 1991 and September of 1993. These novels coordinated with the box set and helped to build and expand the setting further for those looking for more. For those looking for rules for epic-level characters, Dragon Kings was released in 1992 and had the rules necessary for running campaigns for characters of those levels. Another series of novels written by Simon Hawk dropped between November of 1993 and October of 1994 called the Tribe of One series. These books, much like the previous series from Denning, built on and expanded the world of Dark Sun to further flavor adventures in the setting. Bill Slavicek took a run at updating the Dark Sun materials, and in 1995, the expanded and revised box set was released. The entire idea behind the update was to bring the game materials up to date with the novels and all of the other events and characters that had been released in various supplements since the original box's release four years earlier. Of course, as you'd expect from TSR, there were a number of new supplements released that built on Slavicek's work. It might not seem like much in light of the major addition changes we've seen to D&D over the past 20 years, but doing a major upgrade to the rules four years after release was a pretty big thing in the early 90s. One of the major changes was in providing more details on the world outside the Tyr region, since Tyr had been the primary setting for the original box, yet the novels and a number of other supplements had offered insight into some of those regions. However, Tyr got itself a major upgrade as well, with the new box and its supplements providing a ton of new information about the city-state. Additionally, the various races and classes of Dark Sun got renovations, making them even more a part of the Dark Sun world and less a part of the traditional AD&D worlds players were accustomed to. For all of the successes of Dark Sun to this point, it wasn't enough to save Battle System. That system was dropped by TSR and therefore was no longer utilized in Dark Sun releases after about 1992. I know we're getting a bit out of timeline order, but I wanted to hit the revised version before dropping this little nugget in there. With the loss of battle system, psionics were given a larger role in Dark Sun. 
Now, psionics had existed in the D&D world since the late 1970s, and Dark Sun was tied into the Complete Psionics Handbook, which had been released in 1991. It should have been a rather seamless integration, considering that all of the characters of Dark Sun are psionic to some degree. However, the designers have noted over the years that the time taken to hanging the rules of the Psionics Handbook onto every living thing in Dark Sun was time that could have been better spent on other design elements. The end of the Dark Sun line came in 1996. TSR released its product schedule in December of that year in Dragon Magazine 236, and there were no Dark Sun releases on the schedule. Typically in the game world, if a product line doesn't have a release in the coming year, you can pretty much be sure that the line has either been suspended or outright canceled. That means that Psionic Artifacts of Athis, which had been released earlier in 1996, was the final book released in the line. At the time, and in multiple interviews conducted since then, it's been reported that there were two other books that were either near completion or basically completed when the line was cancelled. They would have been titled Dregoth Ascending and Secrets of the Dead Lands. The rumors and reports go so far as to claim that there were early versions of these books given to DMs at Gen Con in 97. However, I've combed through discussion board after discussion board and can't find anybody who actually has either of these. That doesn't mean there aren't a lot of folks who claim to have gotten them. They just seem to not have the actual documents to prove their claims. Designer Kevin Melka has added to the rumors over the years, reporting that there was a halfling book, a book on dwarves, and a book on the order that he'd personally proposed to TSR in 1997, but the fact that they didn't order a start to production meant, to him anyway, that they were finished with the line. Melka has also stated that books covering an invasion of the Kreen Empire, the mystery of the messenger, and something covering the Silt Sea were also being considered when the line was canceled. And again, I know I'm getting out of timeline order here, but I did want to mention that there was one more series of Dark Sun novels published during the setting's initial run called The Chronicles of Athis. It was a five-book series that helped lay out descriptions of different areas of the home world, as well as expand on the city-state that is Tyr. The line ran from July of 1994 through April of 1996, and the novels were also discontinued when the line was shut down at the end of 96. Now, we've discussed the purchase of TSR by Wizards of the Coast and the shift to D&D 3rd Edition on more than one episode of this podcast, so I'm not going to get into any more details about that here. However, these changes did have an effect on Dark Sun. Now, we have to start with the campaigning by fans of Dark Sun. When it came around to bringing previous settings back for the new edition, there were a large number of fans clamoring for Dark Sun to be one of those. However, while Forgotten Realms was brought back and Greyhawk was essentially the default setting, no other setting got an official Wizards of the Coast series released for it, and I was specific with my wording because while Dragonlance got some 3E love, it was because it was written using licenses controlled by others and based on the open game license for 3rd edition. It also seemed to piss off Dark Sun fans, along with Spelljammer and other settings, when instead of bringing one of the classic settings back, Wizards instead hosted a new setting contest, which was won by Eberron. So the fans decided to take matters into their own hands, and they had some help. By this point, Paizo Publishing had the license to produce both Dungeon and Dragon magazines, and David Noonan took the Dark Sun setting, updated it for 3rd edition, and presented it to Paizo for publishing. In 2004, both magazines presented just enough materials on the Dark Sun setting to give the fans what they needed, which was the rules to their favorite setting adjusted to the new edition of the game. And where Paizo had left holes or gaps in the rules, 
Athis.org picked up the slack. Athis.org is a website run by fans of Dark Sun, and along with some of the designers of the original, they utilized the open game license, as did Paizo, to make sure Dark Sun got its third edition Day in the Sun. It also attempted to bring the meta plot back to something along the lines of the original box set and away from some of the materials and plots produced with the expanded and revised set back in 94. The creators of this edition also took the time to create 3E rules for Elons and Manids, which were new to the setting for the new edition and therefore needed their own character rules, history, and other setting details. For the record, if you've got a copy of the Sandstorm supplement lying around, it has some general desert details that would fit in just fine with Dark Sun, and Wizards has claimed over the years that that was the idea. In 2008, D&D 3.5 came out, and Athos.org stepped up to ensure Dark Sun was updated yet again. This time, rather than going through a full update, including the setting and all of the extra goodies, just the rules got adjusted, since they were the only things that were really needing an upgrade. The overall idea was to streamline the meta plot and allow for campaign creation across a wider range than the 3E rules had allowed. It also allowed for gameplay in any era of Athos, even going so far back as to be in the blue age. It's at this point I should note that while Wizards didn't officially release any of this stuff, they did give their blessings to Paizo and Athos.org to do so, then went a step further. They gave Athos.org permission to convert and release two unpublished second edition source books. Dragoth Ascending came out in 2005, as did Terrors of the Deadlands. These new materials gave DMs and players a whole wealth of new information, as well as campaigns that they could run with the Dark Sun rules. And yes, I realize I went outside the timeline again. I'm going to do that a bit more as we move along, and I'm doing it because I feel some information fits better in different places. It's all good. In fact, let's step back to 2004 for a moment. Dragon Magazine in May 2004, along with Dungeon Magazine that same month, published articles detailing an alternate interpretation of the 3.5 edition setting. Written by Chris Flipsey and John Senderquist, the idea was rather than rolling higher dice for ability scores, all character races have improved ability scores. Every race has an additional bonus to one or more ability scores, an innate psionic power, and other bonuses not available in the regular version of the game. To balance this out a bit, every race has a level adjustment, which means that a PC of one race in Dark Sun is at least one PC level higher than a standard PC for the purposes of balancing parties and encounters. I'd also like to note here that Flipsy and Cinderquist are on the Athis.org overcouncil, which means they're responsible for a great deal of the Athos.org rules for Dark Sun that have come out over the years. So I mentioned at the top of the show that I considered Dark Sun to be one of those settings that had a bright moment in the sun but faded away. That's not exactly true, as you've already seen with the support it got from the fans for 3rd edition. 4th edition brought a revival of sorts, as Wizards actually produced official product for the setting. Let's start at the beginning. On August 14th, 2009, Wizards of the Coast announced at Gen Con that Dark Sun would be the campaign setting released for 4th edition in 2010. As we mentioned in the 4E episode of this podcast, which is available in the archives, Wizards had taken a stance during the 4E years of releasing a new campaign setting or new materials for an existing setting every year. As a part of that release plan, two source books plus an adventure were announced, and those books were Dark Sun Campaign Setting, written by Richard Baker and Robert J. Schwalb, Marauders of the Dune Sea, written by Bruce Cordell, Dark Sun Creature Catalog, written by Richard Baker and Bruce Cordell. All three books released in August of 2010. 
Two months prior, Wizards had a release in their ever-popular Dungeon Tile series that was Dark Sun-themed in anticipation of the new books. Backing up to the announcement, James Wyatt, who was one of the designers for the upgrade, noted that the gritty nature of the setting made it a great fit for the 4th edition rules, which were built on down-and-dirty fighting, among other things. The 4E release could also be described as a reboot of sorts, as the series returned to the setting as it was imagined back in 91 when it was first released. The history of the world was taken back to the time before the Prism Pentad, and if you're looking for more game-based historical references, the time just before the 1991 adventure Freedom is what I'm talking about. What this meant was that a lot of the changes that had been made to the races, classes, and setting as a whole over the years had been stripped away, and themes were added. For those keeping score at home, and we've always got a few of those, which I appreciate by the way, the themes included Athasian Minstrel, Dune Trader, and Elemental Priest, to name three. Each PC had a theme, and much like backgrounds in 5th edition, themes granted additional powers to the character. Speaking to the changes to the setting, Richard Baker noted that they'd done it because they wanted to set Dark Sun in a period that allowed for the widest range of gameplay and campaigns as they could, and they felt that some of the additions made over the years could possibly restrict some of that. It's also been noted in more than one source that Dark Sun 4E stuck closer to the rules than the 2E version had, and Baker noted that that was by design, since they built the updated setting with those rules in mind. He added, though, that they wanted Dark Sun to have its own unique feel, so they did play around in the gray areas of the rules a bit to make that happen. There were a lot of changes made to Dark Sun in the 4E conversion, and listing them all here would take most of the rest of the show. However, one of the biggest changes they made was in the cosmology of the world. In previous editions, Athos was basically isolated from the rest of the D&D universe, which meant that even with a spelljammer ship, you couldn't get to it. 4E relaxed these rules, though it was still difficult to get to Athos. Note I said difficult, not impossible. And before you ask, yes, all of the 4th edition races were included in Dark Sun. Wizards went all out to promote Dark Sun before it was released. Richard Baker utilized his blog to announce and preview many of the changes that were being made to the setting, including some that never actually made it into the final product. He also noted that there would most likely be a preview adventure of Dark Sun at the 2010 D&D XP convention, which there was. It was presented as a full adventure and had a ton of previews of the new material. Penny Arcade PvP also previewed the new materials in their podcast, running an adventure for two weeks in May of June of 2010. They used pre-generated characters and ran a Dark Sun-only campaign. They then fed free excerpts of the games on the D&D Insider website for those who didn't subscribe to their show. And Wizards didn't stop there. They put the adventure Blood Sand Arena out on June 19th, 2010 for Free RPG Day. The second season of D&D Encounters, which was a weekly adventure taking place at your game shops, was devoted to Dark Sun, providing players with 15 weeks of Dark Sun encounters and setting information. Gen Con and PAX Prime had the Glory and Blood Dark Sun arenas, which allowed for the possibility of winning a unique piece of swag, the then unavailable cloth map of the tier region. And finally, the Lost Cistern of Avarak, which had fourth-level pre-generated characters, was released on August 21st, 2010 for Worldwide D&D Game Day. 
While Wizards certainly pulled out all the stops to promote Dark Sun, it didn't get many more releases after the original three books and the various adventures that had been used for previews of the game. There have been a number of theories why, but the most popular ties into something we discussed when we discussed 4th edition in its own show a while back. By the time Dark Sun was released in 2010, a large number of gamers had either abandoned that edition of the game, either going back to 3E or an earlier edition, or leaving D&D behind altogether. Many theorists have put it out there that some of those who departed were probably some of the most supportive fans of Dark Sun. So by the time the setting came out, they'd already washed their hands of the system. So while even though Wizards was anticipating big sales numbers for the setting folks had asked for for more than a decade, backlash against the 4E rules had actually probably cost them sales. I gave my own opinion of 4E during that show, so I won't repeat it here. However, I will say that, as a theory, this is one I can certainly get behind, because it makes sense from a marketing and sales standpoint. That's also why I still stand behind my previous comments about Dark Sun having its moment in the sun, but never really getting its second chance, since its moment in 4E wasn't the best chance it could have gotten. During this period, three more novels were released for the setting, and these stuck pretty much to the format laid out by the setting designers. City Under the Sand came out in October of 2010, while Under the Crimson Sun and Deathmark were released in June and December of 2011, respectively. When 5th edition was released, the clamor for Dark Sun picked up again, as many fans of the setting that had left the game during 4E had returned and wanted their setting back in the official D&D universe. While that has, as of this recording, not happened, Dark Sun has gotten some callouts by designers in 5th edition. At GaryCon 2018, Mike Merles mentioned during a panel that there had been some discussion about bringing back the Mystic class, which was a Dark Sun exclusive and had been part of a playtest article in Unearthed Arcana. However, Merles noted that Wizards had decided to not bring it back until, in his words, quote, we do Dark Sun, end quote. Dark Sun was also name-dropped when the revised psionics rules were contained in another Unearthed Arcana article. So, while it's still possible we'll see Dark Sun for 5th edition, with a new edition of D&D already being worked up, I'd lay my money on seeing it for that edition, which means probably at least another two or three years. That's not to say there isn't any material out there for 5th edition. Athos.org is constantly producing Dark Sun materials for the various editions of D&D, and I noticed the materials on there for 5th edition, once again bringing Dark Sun into the latest edition of the game. So if you're interested in seeing what they've got, head over to Athos.org and check it out. Be prepared to be there for a bit, because there's a ton of good stuff there going all the way back to 3rd edition. Now, before I wrap up the history portion of the show, I wanted to note that in addition to the novels I mentioned throughout the timeline, there was also a five-issue comic run based on Dark Sun created by Alex Irvine and Peter Berting and released by IDW Publishing. And there were several video games set in Dark Sun, among them Dark Sun Shattered Lands in 1993, Dark Sun Wake of the Ravager in 1994, and the MMORPG Dark Sun Online Crimson Sands in 1996. So, to make a short story long, that's the history of Dark Sun. However, an episode covering the setting wouldn't be complete without taking at least a brief look at the setting itself. And I'll note that this is a brief look, as a complete look at the setting could be an episode of its own, and if I'd have been smarter, I'd have laid it out like that. Maybe we'll touch back on this again in the future. I mentioned earlier that the campaign setting of Dark Sun takes place on the world of Athos, and that most of the adventures published take place in the city-state of Tyr, 
and the rest of the Tyr region. There are several other locations that have been utilized in published materials, but something that's interesting to note up front is that there's no detailed map of the configuration of the planet, nor of any other continents on it, which makes it a bit different from most of the other settings in the D&D world. Athis is, as noted in more than one publication, a devastated world. The reason for this is magic run amok. As you get into gameplay, characters find a world that's primarily an empty desert, broken up by corrupt city-states run by power-mad sorcerer kings and the spellcasters that suck up to them. As you'd expect, the climate on Athis is brutal, and when you combine that with the oppressive rule of the sorcerer kings, you've got the recipe for a corrupt, bloodthirsty, and desperate culture. This means that most of the rules of a medieval fantasy setting are gone. There's really no chivalry, which is why there are no paladins in Dark Sun. Whether you like it or not, slavery is prevalent in Dark Sun, along with gladiatorial combats that entertain the rich and elite. Death is also a constant in this culture due to all of the factors we just detailed. To add to the ills of Athos, rain only falls about once a decade. That means that water is at least as valuable as gold, if not more so. This changes a lot of the basics for PCs. Wizards don't have the standard spellbooks, since paper pages and hard covers can't really be a thing. Instead, they use string patterns and unique knots to write out their spells. It should also be noted that metal is a scarce commodity, meaning equipment isn't going to be as strong or as reliable as most players are accustomed to. Weapons, for example, are typically made of obsidian, stone, bone, and or wood, and have a tendency to break easily. Armor isn't much better. It's made from bone, stone, wood, carapace, or obsidian. And much like the weapons, it either breaks easily or is so heavy it's damn near useless. The primary medium for trade and exchange is the ceramic coin, which is made from clay and glazed in different colors, and it's only worth about one one-hundredth of a gold piece. Oh, and there's only one dragon, and if you see it, consider the apocalypse to have begun because it's definitely a world destroyer. Arcane magic draws its powers from the life force of animals and plants, which explains why it's both despised and feared in Dark Sun. It also causes a great damage to the environment because of its life force draining powers. So unless you just happen to be one of those sorcerer kings or their lackeys, you'd better be practicing your magic in secret. Otherwise, you might just find yourself on the business end of a hostile mob, and I wish you good luck with that. Psionics, on the other hand, are prevalent in Dark Sun. Pretty much every living thing on Athis has some form of psionic ability, and PCs have the ability to do some pretty cool things with them, especially since players should be encouraged to focus on psionics over arcane casting. Over the years, many of the rules concerning psionics have been developed specifically from the Dark Sun setting. And finally, let's address the divine spellcasters. As Athis has no deities and no formal religions past what cults have formed around the sorcerer kings, clerics and druids have to find another way to power their spells. In this case, they draw their power from the inner planes and or elemental chaos. By the way, there is some contention within the various editions of Dark Sun as to whether or not there have ever been deities in Dark Sun. Second edition said definitely not, while fourth edition left it a little more open to interpretation. So make of that what you will. After checking out the background of Athos and the irregularities of the setting, I think you can see why I like running it and why my groups don't. The nature of the setting lends itself to some serious down and dirty role playing, with a number of moral decisions having to be made due to the very nature of the society. Players tend to not like playing it because of the restrictions placed on arcane spellcasters, as well as the crappy nature of weapons and armor. Again, for me, these restrictions and limitations lend themselves to the possibility of more and better role playing 
though there are many who may disagree with me, and that's fine. Before we wrap, let's hit up a couple of reviews of the Dark Sun setting. Arcane Magazine said the following about the second edition version, quote, There's plenty of atmosphere in Dark Sun, and despite the seeming uniformity of the geography, a great deal of imagination has gone into detailing its various regions, end quote. The review continued, quote, Life on Athos is particularly tough and short. Never mind the monsters. Failing to take enough water on a desert crossing can be fatal, end quote. The reviewer closed with, quote, If blood in the sand is the bag you're into, you'll find plenty to enjoy under the dark sun, end quote. Chris Wilson did a retrospective on Dark Sun for Time magazine. He noted in his article that Dark Sun would make a good television series, noting it is, quote, a richly imagined world with traces of Dune mixed with Jedi-like powers and a healthy side of murderous human-sized praying mantises, end quote. All right, just take my damn money and make the show already. And with that, we come to the end of today's show. Next week, I'm going to dive back into D&D. This time, though, we're going to dive into the cosmology of the game. I know it's two D&D episodes in a row and I try to avoid that, but in my research the past couple of weeks, I keep getting into the cosmology of the various settings, and I decided that a single episode looking into cosmology could be very interesting. You'll get to be the judge of that next week. In the meanwhile, I'd appreciate it if you check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. This week, I'm doing a post-mortem on the complete campaign build for Deadlands Classic, and I'll be breaking down what I thought worked, what I thought didn't work, and what I'd do different if I had to do it all over again. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, you can hit us up, badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's the cosmology of Dungeons & Dragons. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history.